Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Ryan Ogliori, who is Assistant Professor of Physics at Washington University in St. Louis. His research group uses microanalytical techniques to study extraterrestrial materials in order to better understand the formation and evolution of our solar system, as well as our stars. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so, so I have a few of your papers that you had sent me, Ryan, but before we get to them, uh, I want to set the context for, you study a lot on uh, materials arriving on Earth or arrived on Earth. Uh, I understand that the the solar system, probably five billion years old, Earth itself, four and a, four and a half billion years old, perhaps. Um, and then we have had heavy bombardment for a long period of time. All type of stuff came in. Um, and so could you talk a little bit about sort of the historical um, context, uh, how materials arrived and where they came from and what what we know about them so far? Yeah, so the meteorites, uh, the natural materials, these rocks from space that we get most of our understanding from, the meteorites, really are leftover pieces of different asteroids and planets. We have pieces of Mars and the moon that also bombard us um, from space. And these meteorites, we have 66,000 of them, are a record of uh, the various planet formation processes that started, like you said, four and a half billion. We know this exactly. This is one of the benefits of our field is that we have these laboratory techniques that are extremely precise. So the, the solar system formed 4.567 billion years ago. We know that we know that precisely. And we we call time zero the formation of the first rocks in the solar system. So we know that very well. Um, this And the solar system's history, kind of prehistory before that, is from um, a molecular cloud, the type of, of molecular clouds that you might see in the Orion Nebula, if, if anybody uh, does any backyard astronomy. Um, so our solar system started by a, in a cold, dense molecular cloud like that. Um, a piece of that cloud collapsed 
And because it was spinning slightly, and this is a physics concept, um, and it collapsed to a very small fraction of that size, it conserved that angular momentum, just like an ice skater does uh, when she does a, a, a twirl, a, a jump and, and uh, spin. Uh, so that caused that material to spin out, uh, form kind of a pancake, a flat pancake, and that's what we call the solar nebula. And at that point, it was a bunch of gas and dust, not a lot of uh, complexity. And then my field, cosmochemistry and meteoritics, um, seeks to understand how we went from that really um, simple uh, astrophysical cloud of gas and dust to the planets that we see now. So there are all kinds of chemical and, and impact processes that led us to where we are now. Yeah, I would imagine it's a sort of a nonlinear process. So some parts of that cloud uh, sort of condenses into something. And once it hits, gets some sort of critical mass, I would think it start, start to attract other stuff. And then and then it grows bigger and bigger, right? So, so ultimately we have, well, we thought we had nine planets before, now we have eight, <laughs> eight planets, uh, all formed through that process. But then there are a lot of small uh, pieces that are out there, right? So uh, I know about the old cloud. So where, where exactly is the old cloud in the solar system? Um, oh, the Oort cloud. So the Oort cloud is, is really the, the furthest extent of the, the solar system. It's kind of the end of the solar system. Um, 10,000 to 100,000 um, astronomical units away where that's the, the orbital radius of the Earth. Um, so this is this distant spherical cloud of comets. It hasn't been observed directly, but we have inferred it, its existence from the orbits of uh, long period comets. Um, and these comets are interesting, like Hale-Bopp was an Oort cloud comet. Um, but if you look at the dynamics of the solar system, it's likely that those comets were kicked out to those high orbits, those, those faraway orbits by nearby uh, close interactions with Jupiter and Saturn. So uh, somebody like me wants to study the most primitive material possible. And for that, we actually look at the Jupiter family comets. Uh, those actually uh, formed in the scattered disk beyond the orbit of Neptune, and those are likely to be the most pristine kind of um, time capsules of the formation of the solar system. So is that what we call the Kuiper belt, or that's something different? That's right, yeah. Yeah, so uh, there's comets in the Kuiper belt. The largest object in the Kuiper belt is Pluto, like, like you alluded to. It's no longer considered it um, technically, but planetary scientists and uh, meteoriticists don't really make that distinction to us, like the moon is a planet. Uh, it doesn't really matter in that we mean it has a, a geologic history. It's an environment in and of itself. So. We don't really make that distinction too much. Um, you know, the larger the body has different types of geological processes happening. But um, yeah, so a lot of these uh, bodies that I'm interested in, study, in studying spend, spent the vast majority of their lifetimes in the Kuiper belt. So they were cold and they were unchanged since their formation four and a half billion years ago. Okay. Um, and I guess early on in the Earth's progression, we would have had a lot of visitors, so to speak, from the Kuiper Belt, uh, but now it's sort of thinned out, right? There is uh, much, many, many fewer um, members there, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, fewer impacts now than there were um, in the first 10, 100 million years of the solar system's history. Um, basically, when the planets, especially Jupiter and Saturn, got into stable orbits, 
um, fewer stuff was, you know, less stuff was flying around to bombard us. So we still get some visitors, thankfully, and that's how we understand basically the formation of the solar system through those meteorites. So, so I want to go into your paper. So you have a paper from 2012, incorporation of a late forming control into Comet Wild 2. You say the report a petrology, uh, oxygen isotopic composition and aluminum magnesium isotope systematics uh, of a control fragment from the Jupiter family comet Wild 2, returned to Earth by NASA's Stardust mission. So, so you you talked about you mentioned uh, sort of the Jupiter family comets. Um, would you talk a bit about what NASA's Stardust mission is? Yeah, yeah. So like I said, those those Jupiter family comets were time capsules to the formation in the pre prehistory of the solar system. So um, the problem with cometary material is that it is incredibly fragile. And we know that by looking at cometary meteor showers that we know come from actual comets and we can calculate the ram pressure at which those things break apart. So we know they're extremely fragile. They have the crushing strength of soft snow. So if you go to a really cold place um, and with freshly fallen snow, you know how fragile that is, and that's cometary material. So uh, when we look at the meteorites, the stuff that makes it to the ground, the atmosphere essentially works as a filter to give us the most, the most strong material, the most lithified rock, and that's not comet dust. So we don't have very much comet dust that makes it to Earth. Uh, so, but it's so important because it is that time capsule. So um, with that in mind, NASA sent a mission to a comet, Comet Vilt 2, and collected material. Um, it didn't do it slowly. It collected it at about six kilometers a second into aerogel, which is a very low, low density foam um, that's not much heavier than air. Uh, so that served as to somewhat gently slow down um, this, these cometary rocks that were collected when the Stardust spacecraft flew through the coma of Comet Vilt 2 and returned those, they returned those samples to Earth uh, about 15 years ago now, actually. So, um, and these samples, so like I said, they were, they were thought to be a time capsule of the solar system's very formation and prehistory. So it was called Stardust because we thought the, the material that was going to be returned from that mission was going to be that stardust that we're all created from. I think most people have heard that saying, like, we're all made of stardust, and we are. So this mission was seeking to go out and find that stardust. And what that we think what that is is very isotopically anomalous. So these are very simple minerals, but their iso isotopic composition is very exotic, uh, very small-grained, um, material that we see in, in astronomical observations when we look out into the interstellar medium. So we thought that material, that, that mission was going to return material like that. And like all great like NASA missions and these kind of big projects, the, the exact opposite happened. So we went and brought it back. And, and when we developed the very, very difficult techniques to analyze these very small um, uh, rock fragments that are too small to see with the naked eye, we found that a lot of them were igneous rocks. So the types of igneous rocks that we might see in asteroids and not that really, really fine-grained, exotic, but yet simple mineral um, stardust that we were looking for. So this paper that you mentioned um, that a group of us, it was a whole consortium, worked on 
to me is like the canonical rock from Cometville 2. It's an igneous rock. It appeared to have formed quite late in the solar system's history. And it bears some resemblance to the types of rocks that we see in asteroids that we're bringing back um, now. There's a, a current mission bringing back asteroid dust now. So I expect it to look somewhat like this, this rock iris that we studied in that paper. So, so what's the explanation for that, Ryan? Um, what, are these things sort of went round trip, so to speak, uh, came in and then picked up some materials and went back? <laughs> what's the explanation yeah. for it? Yeah, so so I sent you this paper because we're writing another paper right now, right now that this is this has confused me and the community since we published this almost uh, ten years ago now. Um, so there's a lot of debate when this came out. So what happens in a protoplanetary disk like the solar system's infant disk is that you and we see this now when we look at protoplanetary disks around other stars that immediately you start accreting um, material and you start forming planets. And when you do that, you carve out a gap in the protoplanetary disk. And we see this with this ALMA telescope in Chile now. We see these spectacular images of these disks with these big gaps in them. Uh, and in our solar system, it's, it's thought that Jupiter carved out that gap. And if you have a gap there, you can't move stuff from the inner solar system to the outer solar system where the comets formed. So this rock, which appeared to be an igneous object that formed in the inner solar system, ended up in the outer solar system. And at the time, I assumed that this happened before Ju Jupiter formed. But in the, in the 10 years since then, there's been a whole lot of work in my field to analyze all these di different types of meteorites and it, it was found that the meteorites are split bimodally into two groups, inner solar system and outer solar system. And that combined with dating shows that Jupiter likely, the rocky core of Jupiter, likely formed very, very quickly within half a million years. And so this, this object, Iris, from the comet formed more than three million years after the start of the solar system. So... Lately, some of my colleagues thought, well, maybe it formed outside of Jupiter. There is some exotic process colliding planets outside of Jupiter that heated, heated rock up enough to melt it and form an igneous rock like this rock iris. So that's what we're thinking now, and we're doing some more analyses to, to test that hypothesis. Yeah, I mean, Jupiter is a big player, so to speak, in the solar system, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it almost acts as a vacuum cleaner uh, in, in many ways, and so could it have could it have cooked up some things and uh, and put it out there? Uh, is it sort of a factory um, of creating materials and? Yeah, yeah. I think there's there's an idea that that bow shocks from from forming planets could have processed material um, to to the igneous rocks that we see now. So. Um, yeah, possibly proto-Jupiter and other planets that have since died and we only have fragments of them left, um, could have done processes like that. And I think I think that's probably likely now. And it's it's taken many years of, of analyses of various meteorites um, to prove to really the whole community that you can form these igneous rocks um, like chondrules that we see um, they're 80% of some meteorites, so they're everywhere. It had to be incredibly efficient. 
Um, so you probably had to produce those by different types of mechanisms all over the solar system, including in the outer solar system. So I think I'm kind of leaning towards that way now, which is different than the conclusion I wrote in that paper. But, you know, we, we change our mind when we get <laughs> Yeah, that's the beauty of physics, right? Beauty of science in general. Um, so, so, so we are sure that Jupiter has a, a rocky core. Uh, I saw some data, somewhat unrelated, uh, Ryan. Uh, so this, uh, you know, the red spot, the famous red spot on, on Jupiter, it seems to extend thousands of miles <laughs> into the into the planet, which is a, a mind-boggling thing to even think about. Um, but the core itself, we are pretty sure it's rocky. And do we know how how big that core is? I think. Juno, the the mission Juno will um, tell us more about that, and I'm I have to confess I'm a little uh, ignorant on their most recent results, so I should probably go go look that up. But I think Juno, which is um, in orbit around Jupiter, will will give us more of that information, and I'm I'm unsure what the current state of the art is on that. Yeah, so so I want to go into a couple of your uh, more recent papers. So one of them. Earth's water may have been inher inherited from materials similar to and static uh, chondrite meteorites. Uh, you say the origin of Earth's water remains unknown, and static chondrite uh, EC meteorites have similar isotopic composition to terrestrial rocks and thus may, thus may be representative of the material that formed Earth. Um, so, so this has been a puzzle. I mean, we got a lot of water on Earth. Um, and so, so what's our latest hypothesis as to how that water came to Earth? Right, yeah, this is, this is an ongoing debate in cosmochemistry. And this is kind of the last volley in that debate, which was uh, a paper that was co-authored by my postdoc. And when he was here, we worked on um, this type of problem on other samples, and we're we're also writing that paper right now. But um, so the most recent idea is that Earth is very similar to a particular group of of meteorites called the encinite chondrites, um, and it seems to be similar to those meteorites in various isotope systems, oxygen, and others. Um, so it was thought that Earth possibly accreted um, encinite chondrite-like material. Um, and that, that ended up being the rocky part of Earth. Um, but the problem was, with that was that Earth formed relatively close to the sun and encinite chondrites were thought to not have a lot of water in them. And this most recent study showed that perhaps encinite chondrites have a bit more water than we thought. Um, and the isotopic composition of that water might match the Earth's oceans. And if we, and if you believe these water contents and encinite chondrites, which I don't totally believe yet, um, then that could be responsible for Earth's water. Uh, and this is a different idea. Um, you may have heard previously, it's thought that Earth's water was delivered um, by asteroids, wet asteroids and comets. Um, I think that's still a viable hypothesis. Um, part of the problem with that is with comets, they seem to have a hugely variable um, hydrogen to, to, to deuterium ratio. So um, we probably should match the isotopic composition of hydrogen and oxygen in the water that we deliver to Earth. So that's been part of the game is matching um, the isotopic composition of the water from these various bodies to Earth's oceans because that has to add up that way. 
Um, I think that's probably still the more likely hypothesis. So my postdoc, who, who was a co-author on that paper, when he was here with me, we were looking to analyze with a new technique using the nanosims in our lab, um, the hydrogen and oxygen isotopic composition of uh, samples from D-type asteroids. So we have a lot of samples from, from C-type asteroids. Those are the carbonaceous chondrites. We only have a couple samples from these D-type asteroids that are thought to farm, uh, form further out in the asteroid belt. Uh, so we developed techniques uh, and were able to analyze material from these D-type asteroids. And with our analyses, we can possibly match, um, understand the, the contribution from the D-type asteroids to Earth's oceans as well. So when you say isotopic composition, um, are you talking about sort of the deuterium to regular water ratio? What, what, what do you mean by the isotopic composition of water? Yeah, so I, I'm usually talking about both oxygen and hydrogen isotopes. So hydrogen isotopes are deuterium to what we call hydrogen, normal hydrogen. And oxygen has three isotopes, oxygen 16, 17, and 18, three stable isotopes. So with hydrogen isotopes, it's actually very difficult because you can change the isotopic composition of hydrogen by simple processes like uh, evaporation and condensation that can change that ratio pretty drastically. Um, but when we look at three uh, the three isotopes of oxygen, the relative ratios of those don't necessarily change with those processes like evaporation and condensation if we look at a, a certain value called cap delta 17O to use a very <laughs> uh, specific term. So we can look at that to really pin down the reservoirs. And that's why we use both of those. Yeah, so that seems like a very uh, interesting way to answer the question where, where it all came from, right? So if, uh, so, so EC was initially rejected because it didn't have a lot of water, but now we think um, it, it had water. Um, asteroids have been mentioned. Comets are generally all water, right? Typically, I see stuff. Yeah, yeah, and that's that relates to what I said about it being very fragile. So when we we do collect cometary dust in the stratosphere from converted uh, Cold War spy planes, and we look at that dust, it's like all pore space. So what we think it is, I mean, we the the ice evaporates by the time we get it. So we get these particles that are very, very fluffy, like I said, and, and it could be that that pore space is filled with ice. So the water to rock ratio on a comet could be one to one, something like that. Dirty, you know, they, they said dirty snowballs. I might think of an icy dirt ball. Maybe that's a better. <laughs> icy dirt ball. So um, so that hypothesis is still at play, I guess, right? So all the water could have been delivered by comets. Um, so I, I think so, yeah, because we see the uh, deuterium to hydrogen ratio in comets, which we can measure spectroscopically from telescopes, varies by a factor of 100. But if you get the right mix, it might make the oceans. And um, I mean, if these things were coming in, they would have gone to Mars, they would have gone to the moon. Um, why, why are we not finding, I mean, moon doesn't have sufficient uh, mass to hold on to it, but why, why are we not finding water on Mars? So it seems like 
Uh, we find evidence of, of um, lake beds and other things like that on historic Mars and possibly evidence of uh, condensing ice on Mars. It's hard, for, I, I, it's hard to keep track because they have so much evidence of historic water on Mars um, that in during the Amazonian period of Mars, for example, there's probably you know, not as much water here on Earth, but much more water than there is now. And so, so we have a lot of missions going on to Mars. So do you think we will get data from Mars that sort of settles this a little bit better? Because um, the sort of pristine data that we could get, right? Yeah, I think the thing I'm excited about for the Mars missions, I'm a sample person, so I, I like rocks in hand. And the problem with what I do is that I don't have any geologic context for my samples, like they're delivered from space, we find them on the ground, we don't know where they came from for the meteorites. Uh, for Mars, we're actually uh, collecting samples now, we're getting uh, drill cores and caching them and we'll retrieve them via two other missions uh, in the future. So I think um, we can do amazing stuff with rovers, um, but it's still another uh, leap in capabilities when you actually have the samples in hand. So. I think um, with the water question, I'm not, boy, I'm not sure. Um, we have to collect the right sample. Um, but with those samples coming back, you know, it's not going to be for a while yet, but we'll be able to measure their detailed mineralogy at the atom level. And I think we'll be able to answer some of these interesting questions for sure. Um, I don't know if there's data, but do, do we have sort of sufficient understanding if you look at all the planets, all the planets meaning um, Mars, Earth, uh, Mercury, and sort of the, the rocky planets, their composition is similar. Uh, in other words, they, they could not have been formed by different processes, right? They could not have been bombarded by different materials, right? Yeah, I think, um, <clears throat> you know, we don't know, we can estimate the bulk composition of Mars, for example, from the meteorites that we have. Um, Venus is, is less known. It's hidden from us by its thick atmosphere. And we've landed uh, the Venera landers on Venus, the Russians did. Uh, but we don't know a whole lot about its surface. Um, Mercury, we know from the messenger mission, but we're just looking at the, the top crust, you know? And, and this is part of the problem if we're talking about bulk compositions. I think the terrestrial planets all have relatively similar bulk compositions. Um, if we're talking about that to me, it's it's the terrestrial planets basically have one composition, the gas giants, Jupiter and Saturn have another, and then the ice giants and the Kuiper belt are something else entirely. So we definitely see like a chemical fractionation um, with radial distance from the sun and the solar system. Is there anything special about the solar system, Ryan? That so if, if we find you know sort of a extra uh, extra solar system. Uh, could we assume that these types of processes are fairly normal? In other words, if it is in the, you know, in the Goldilocks zone, if there's a planet in the Goldilocks zone, it will get water delivered to it. It will hold on to that water and uh, it will have sort of an Earth-like characteristics. So is there something special about that vendor in the solar system? Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's what we're... You know, when, when my field started, you know, in the 1800s, we didn't think about this, right? That, that we're studying the formation of our solar system as a type case for the formation of planetary systems in the galaxy. 
Uh, but really in the last 20 years and really in the last 10 years, we know that, that extrasolar planetary systems are not uncommon in the galaxy and, and the universe. So uh, now we can see cosmochemistry and the, the formation, the first 5 million years of our solar system's history as a typecase for all of these other extrasolar planetary systems that we see. So, and ours is the most interesting because we know there's one planet capable and did uh, host life, right? So it's the perfect case. And, and with cosmochemistry and with these meteorites, we can understand the formation of these events to within 10,000 years. Uh, we can do this very, very precisely. So I think, yeah, I think, I, I don't know, we have the anthropic principle issue of like, we're here to ask that question, so maybe it's not fair to say that the solar system's typical. But if we if we really push on these cosmochemical analyses, we can know exactly how these things happened here. And that's why I'm interested in, in these problems that we've talked about already, like the, the building blocks of the solar system, the astrophysical context of the solar system's formation, and then the delivery of water to Earth, or how did Earth get that water? So those are the questions I'm interested in as a type case for how we can, how we can develop habitable planets elsewhere in the galaxy. Yeah, but there's also a hypothesis that life was delivered to Earth, right? Panspermia or, or whatever they call it. Uh, do we have any evidence for that, or it's really difficult to, uh, <laughs> to, to find out one way or the other? Yeah, I think that's hard. I think we find amino acids, like in the comet samples that, that I talked about from Stardust, we definitely found amino acids there. Um, my opinion is that um, empty space without an atmosphere and a magnetic field is a very, very harsh place to live. So I think the radiation environment's pretty rough, but if you're buried within a meter of the rock, you know, you're shielded. I think the delivery of these primordial amino acids to Earth that type of pansperma, I definitely think happened. Um, in my opinion, I, I don't have um, a lot of expertise in this area. I, I think it's unlikely that life itself was brought here uh, via asteroids, meteorites, cometary dust, that kind of thing. But I think the ingredients for it were. Uh, because based on where we form, you know, we had to form close enough to the sun to be warm, but if we're too close, we, don't have, we can't have enough water. We can't have these uh, organic compounds that, that form that we need to create life. So I think this idea of us not being an island, um, but having this exogenous material delivered to us so that life could develop is a really interesting thing. And that's why I think this, this paper that I sent you about the antistichondrites, um, it's, it's really important. Like how much of an island are we? And what did we need in terms of delivery from outside of, of Earth's orbital radius um, do we need to uh, develop life on this planet? Yeah, so if life is not delivered and life actually originated on Earth, then at least intuitively it feels like life becomes more rare. I mean, we have an end of one experiment with, you know, even if you have the right raw materials, it's still an end of one experiment. Um, do, you, do you see it that way? Uh, if that's the case, um, you know, the extraterrestrial life probability declines elsewhere. Yeah, yeah, this is this is a Drake equation problem. Um, and yeah, I'm not sure. This is this is an extremely difficult question. And I and I really and I always feel uncomfortable speculating on things I don't have data for. So 
the other thing that that we that we just looked at was Earth's astrophysical environment, right? And what we saw is that the solar system's parent molecular cloud was likely irradiated by a nearby massive star, and this this we think explains a lot of these isotope anomalies we see in meteorites. But if we look at other planetary systems that are irradiated by nearby stars, some of them don't survive, right? So some of them have these, these beautiful protoplanetary disks around them, which was an analog to the forming solar system, and they're being irradiated away by a nearby massive star. So by the time you have, you're forming, you could have formed planets that disk has been photo evaporated away, it's gone. So life couldn't form on that system. But we know in, in, in our solar system, it was kind of this Goldilocks environment, just like the question of the water, because we were close enough to a star to see the, the effects of it in terms of the isotope anomalies in the solar system. But if we were too close, we wouldn't be here to ask that question. So, um, and star formation happens in, in groups, in clusters, so when you when you have a smaller uh, star like the sun, it's likely that you'll have large stars nearby. But if they're too close, we wouldn't survive. So I think there's a lot of these questions that go into like the Drake equation, like what are the, the chances of all these things? And this kind of astrophysical environment question is another factor of that Drake equation that, you know, I think we're thinking more about now. Yeah, so many things have to come together. Um, but if the probability is still low, but you are multiplying it with uh, with a few trillion, uh, things still <laughs> happen elsewhere. The question is whether we will ever find it. So, so you have another recent paper. You mentioned this: a cosmic symplectite recorded irradiation by nearby massive stars in the solar system's parent molecular cloud. Um, so, so I was wondering, Ryan. So, if uh, Jupiter were a star. Uh, we would not have a, had a chance, right? It, it, it would have sort of destroyed the whole process, I would think. Yeah, we would have been in a kind of binary system. Um, yeah, we see we see planets around binary type stars. Um, I think just recently there was a report of a planet planetary system around a binary star, but I think it gets very complicated. This this Goldilocks zone that you mentioned, I think, gets much harder at that point. Um, but yeah, I think if, if Jupiter had enough mass to ignite, then um, we probably wouldn't be here. <laughs> That's right. So, so you say in this paper, um, Sun's astrophysical birth environment affected the formation and composition of the solar system. Primitive meteoroids display mass-independent oxygen isotope anomalies. They're likely caused by ultraviolet photochemistry of CO gas phase molecules. So, so what, what do we learn from this, um, you know, sort of the sun's effect on, on the solar system early on? Yeah, yeah, so this is one of the, you know, we talked about, we're talking about the two biggest questions in chemistry. really. The water delivery to Earth is, is very important, and also this astrophysical context of the sun's formation. So what, what we saw about, um, a little more than say 14 years ago now. So we didn't know the we don't know the detailed isotopic composition of the sun uh, until we flew another a NASA mission like that Stardust mission we talked about a relatively inexpensive discovery class mission to collect samples of the solar wind so we can understand the sun's composition 
isotopic and chemical composition with that precision we need for our cosmochemistry analyses in the lab, which I said were extremely precise. So that mission flew to the sun, collected material, came back. They put the accelerometers in the return capsule upside down. So it crashed uh, into the Utah mud, um, which was fine because we still got 99% of the science out of that mission. And the most important result of that was that the sun, the sun's oxygen isotopic composition was 6% lighter than everything else in the solar system. And 6% doesn't sound like a lot when we're talking about um, other things in, in astronomy, but in cosmochemistry, it's a huge, huge difference. And so this um, was the mystery that, that many of us have been trying to solve since those, those measurements were made at UCLA about 14 years ago. Um, and so this, this paper that you mentioned is our take on this. And we, we didn't measure samples of the sun to understand this. We measured samples of this really interesting phase called cosmic symplectite, which seems to have, have that heavy complement to the sun's light composition. So the sun's light, the Earth's normal, we thought it was normal, and then this cosmic symplectite is heavy. And it seems to be the only thing in the solar system that has that heavy composition. And what I think of it as is the, the meteorites, uh, a famous meteoriticist once said, the meteorites are tight-lipped witnesses to the beginning. So a lot of their record, a lot of their witness to the beginning got erased. But once in a while, something slips through, and that cosmic symplectite slipped through. It was discovered accidentally, and it's made of, of uh, iron oxide and iron sulfide. And what we did was measure the sulfur isotope composition. And there are four isotopes of sulfur that we can measure. And with those four isotopes, I said with two, it was hard. With three, we learned more. With four, we learned a huge amount. So for, with those four isotopes, we're able to constrain the ultraviolet spectrum of the star that caused this photo, this, this difference in isotopes between the sun and the rest of the solar system. And that spectrum did not look like the sun, but it looked like a massive star, uh, an O or B type star that was nearby in the galaxy when the, when the sun formed. So that one just came out and I think, um, I think it will, will change our field um, because I, I'm, I'm pretty confident that this was, was good evidence that our neighbors, and again, I'm interested in this idea that we're not an island, right? So Earth is not an island, the solar system's not an island, and it was, it was profoundly affected by stars that are long since drifted away and exploded as supernova or maybe black holes on the other side of the galaxy now. I don't know, it was four and a half billion years ago, so a lot has happened. Um, so that paper, I think, gave us that context. And it was a real, um, real testament to what meteorites can do because we found this one little, or somebody else found it, we analyzed it, but this one tiny little phase in one meteorite that's like as big as my fist that somebody found in Algeria in the 1990s. And it's nowhere else. And we just got to find as many meteorites as we can because there's another cosmic symplectite out there that recorded some other very important astrophysical process that we don't know about yet. So, so this B-type massive star was in the neighborhood when sun, sun was forming? That is yeah. the conclusion? Yeah. And so 4.67 billion years later, it's not there. So it would have burned out. It would have supernova. 
lot faster. Uh, I, I don't know that the sizes of these things. So B-type uh, star would have been gone very quickly, right? That's right. 20 to 40 solar masses, um, maybe as, as small as 10, but um, many, many times bigger than the sun. Uh, so yeah, it burned out very quickly. Um, everything kind of drifts apart and it's, it's long gone. And so, but it would have provided some material. So do we have, I mean, this is really difficult, but do we know the sort of the proximity distance <laughs> to, to that when it, when it existed? Um, you know, we do because it can't be, it can't be too far away else we wouldn't see the isotope anomalies that it created. And it can't be too close for too long else we wouldn't be here to talk about it <laughs> and have this podcast. So what I think, uh, it was, a, it was uh, about a tenth to a hundredth of a parsec away is what I'm guessing it was. And it would have looked, if we could see it now, that size star that close would be about as big as the full moon. So when it burns out, it would have become a white war for a neutron star or even a black hole. Um, so, so do we know what, <laughs> what the ultimate fate of that thing was? No, and, and if, you know, it was so long ago and we have, you know, kilometers per second relative speeds compared to these other stars that form near us. So I, I, I did some calculations to think like, is this a nearby black hole or nearby neutron star or what? But no, it would be um, just with the average um, relative speed between a couple stars, it would be, you know, a tenth or halfway across the galaxy. So it's it's in the field now it's it's long i like that idea of like can we see can we identify <laughs> that that neighbor that ghost that almost destroyed the solar system but um it's there but we'll never find it <laughs> yeah but there, there's some hypothesis i know that this is not a very popular one that the planet nine that that people talk about is actually a black hole and so so i wondered if sun captured it after <laughs> after it burned uh, burned itself out yeah, yeah, this one would be um, massive enough that, yeah, it couldn't be. We would see something that large, that close. So um, this this one is, you know, several solar masses, so it's long gone. Yeah. So uh, I know that there are multiple missions uh, still, uh, NASA missions, uh, thinking about these things. So um, if you were to conclude on this, um, Ryan, you know, so you look forward next five, ten years, what are the areas that you are, you know, sort of most focused on, and 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 what do you think we will, you know, will most likely make interesting discoveries in? Yeah, I think we're bringing a lot of samples back um, from known bodies, and like I said before, we don't like. I'm a physicist, and I'm a rock person, and I work with geologists. And if I can't give you the geologic context where that rock came from, I know a lot less about the science um, and I can do a lot fewer interesting things and it's amazing what we've done with the meteorites so far but we're bringing samples back the Japanese have already returned samples from uh, a c-type asteroid um, theirs was called Ryugyu uh, the NASA OSIRIS-REx mission is bringing back samples from asteroid Bennu and these are going to be gram size samples and we could do a lot I could spend my entire career studying micrograms so with grams we can do a huge amount of analyses so those two samples will be very exciting um, in terms of, of uh, more planetary type processes 
Um, the Chinese return samples from the moon. Uh, NASA will too in coming years. So, and my, I'm most excited about, and I hope this works out, but um, what we really need is a, a low, a low velocity collection of cometary material. So I mentioned the Stardust samples earlier in this talk, and they were also um, compromised a little bit by how we collected them. So we collected them at six kilometers a second, and we, and we may have lost some of that really fluffy stuff that I was talking about. So if we can go to a comet and go uh, and collect it, grab a piece like we did with the asteroids, and bring it back to Earth, and I'd really like to bring the ice back too. So it's not, you know, we're just we're sampling the rocks, but that rocks are the half the story, and and probably the ices are the more interesting story. So I'd love to have a cryogenic comet nucleus sample return. Uh, it's a priority of NASA for for the new frontiers, kind of their more expensive missions um, coming up in the next decade or two. Um, I hope that that works out. It gets funded, and I hope I'll still be around when the samples come back. Um, these are long timescale things, right? And in, in while we're waiting for these samples, we can analyze the meteorites and other things we already have. Um, and I think that combined with, um, so astronomy, it's very, there are two very interesting things in astronomy that are happening now that, that, didn't, that weren't around a couple decades ago, um, where astronomy is, is doing exoplanetary science. And those two things are the, the um, submillimeter observations of protoplanetary disks, and exoplanet observations. So these two things, and they're, they're uh, using new satellites and new techniques and new observatories, but those two techniques are kind of like exoplanetary science, and that didn't exist. And now our community, we're rock people mostly, uh, don't really talk so much with those astronomers. And I'm trying to do more of that, and I think integrating those types of observations of what's happening elsewhere with our very, very detailed, but very, very narrow view of what happened here can really inform our ideas of how you make planets and how you make planets like Earth, which is the most important planet after all. Um, so I'm super excited about these connections with astronomy and these new samples coming back in the coming years. Yeah, the good thing is some billionaires are interested in asteroid mining, as you know. Mm -hmm. So if NASA can, NASA is collaborating with some of these people, um, so, so to, to bring a, a, a piece of a comet, including the ice, that is a really interesting engineering problem, right? Um, so, so I would imagine, so you grab something at six kilometers per second, you're going to lose most of it. So you have to, I don't know how you would do it. I mean, you cannot land on these things, right? You have to you have to synchronize in, in, in so finely mm -hmm. uh, to make that happen. So there's a huge amount of engineering innovation. that. Might oh, yeah, yeah. And, and people are working on it of, of ideas to, to shoot something into a body, but you don't know the material properties of the body. And this, this is the hard thing because the sample is what matters. So on these other, the remote sensing space missions where you're not bringing back a sample, you, you beam back the data to Earth, but a sample return mission isn't, isn't a success until you have that sample in a lab on Earth. So, I mean, I think I know like a cometary um, outside of a comet has been sitting in space and been irradiated and could be tougher than we think it is. So dealing with contingencies, like building something that could to 
go into a comet and grab material, bring it back and put it into a sample return capsule is incredibly difficult. But then dealing with contingencies, to me, uh, I, you know, I don't build these kind of things and the people who do, I'm totally astonished by because they have to make sure this thing works in a number of, of unknown parameter space and it's, it's amazing. And and then you have to put the accelerometers right side up. <laughs> I mean, it, it's amazing, and I always like to say that. But think of all the the ten billion things they did right, and every this is this is space missions and space travel. Like you could do ten million things right and do one thing wrong, and it's catastrophic. Like it is incredibly incredibly difficult. Um, so yeah, that that mission we it crashed in the mud and we had to change how we did the analyses. But we you know it took longer, but we got all the science out. It was really incredible. Yeah, I mean the other thing that's happening obviously there is a lot of development in artificial intelligence, robotics. So human tends to be sort of the the weak link in the process. So if, if you take the human out, I think yeah. you reduce errors in the process as right. well. <laughs> yeah, imperial metric conversions and. There's been lots of things like this. And, and when I think about that, I think how many mistakes I would make if I was building one of these things myself. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's not easy, but we've done incredible things, you know, and I think I think doing doing small missions, I think is is the future too. So like as like the complexity as anybody knows that's written code knows, the longer it gets, you know, it gets twice as long, it doesn't get twice as buggy, it gets four times as buggy. And I think this happens with space missions that get exponentially more complicated. And I like these ideas of, of simple, clever, focused missions that do just one thing very well. So I, I hope we do more of that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it also has sort of spillover benefits, right? A lot of people are worried about a meteor hit. Um, and I, I'm not sure if we have sufficient defenses uh, against that. So what do we do in this space gives us knowledge and experience um, in that direction. The other thing I was wondering about, Ryan, you know, couldn't our technologies improve? Um, couldn't we get, you know, sort of spectral analysis in, in more refined fashion? Do we have to really get a sample? Um, couldn't we? Couldn't we figure this out from a distance? Yeah, there's a lot we can do from a distance, and we can do. So we can measure isotopes with vibrational spectroscopy. So we got we got a, a diatomic molecule, and if this atom's heavier, it vibrates at a different frequency. So we're able to measure isotope ratios astronomically, but we can't do it with very high precision. So that's why if I had the, I have the sample and I polish it and it's flat, and I fire a beam of cesium atoms, and ions come off, and I accelerate them, and I count them one by one in the lab, and that is as good as you can get. So if we're looking at you know, big, big changes in isotope ratios, astronomical spectroscopic measurements are fine, but <clears throat> just to compare what we know about the first 5 million years of the solar system's history, most of that, a lot of it comes from isotope measurements. Um, we're able to measure the solar system's age, a four and a half billion year old thing to within a few tens of thousands of years. And that's the type of precision we can do with laboratory measurements. And they're getting, it, it's getting better. Like the instruments that you can fly on a spacecraft are getting better. Uh, and we can fly more advanced things, but the laboratory measurements are also getting better because those are driven by other industries, right? They're driven by semiconductor industries 
where there's a huge amount of money going into developing these things. And then I use these techniques to look at comet rocks. <laughs> and I'm just piggybacking off of this, these enormous laboratory technical advancements, which are happening very rapidly too. And I say, oh, that's a cool thing. Can I put a piece of comet dust in that instrument too? Yeah, that's interesting. So both, both the fields are developing together. Um, perhaps uh, you know, the laboratory measurements are developing faster because of other industries um, really doing a lot of R&D in there. And so it seems to me that, Ryan, you, you, are, uh, you are need to hold the rock in your hand uh, could be dominant for a long period of time, uh, even if our observational capabilities improve a lot. Yeah, yeah, and we're, yeah, and I think they work, they're going to work in tandem. Um, you know, and it's amazing what we can, what we can piggyback off of, like if we just, you know, we can, I saw somebody argue that we can do an amazing amount of really cool astronomy, um, flying a small spacecraft by a bunch of uh, comets and asteroids and taking pictures of their, of their nucleus just with an iPhone camera. <laughs> like light gathering ability, you know, it's not radiation hardened and that's a slight complication, but we don't need to develop these cameras because it's already just literally take it out of the iPhone and put it on a small spacecraft and it could do amazing things. So um, that, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's great to piggyback off of all this R&D that other people have done, that's for sure. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Ryan. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Great. Thank you. It's been fun. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.